it wasn't supposed to be this way. Syracuse was never supposed to get to the Final Four. And why, oh why, did Michigan State crap out in the first round? My Final Four is shot. It's all over. I'll never get that billion dollars from Warren Buffett for predicting a perfect March Madness bracket. Welcome to the Ball Ball Podcast. I'm James Murphy, and I'm sitting next to my dog and co-host Seamus. He's patiently comforting me as I say goodbye to another season of March Madness that I screwed up by blindly picking random teams to do well based off the drunken recommendations of sports fans I met in a bar. What's that? It's Maryland's year to go all the way? Thanks for nothing. Anyway, when we're not moping about the Final Four, the Ball Ball Podcast is talking about elections happening in the United States and around the world. On this month's show, we're going to commiserate with everyone who feels like the presidential nomination bracket is narrowing down to candidates they really don't like, and what they can do about a general election that might nominate a Democrat and a Republican that they just can't in good conscience choose between. Then we're going to take a tour around the world and look at some important elections that are happening in April. But all of this is going to be kind of heavy. It's going to be full of indicted war criminals running for prime minister and fights breaking out in the parliament houses. So then we're going to take a break and, and get out of our funk by leaving the earth entirely and heading for a magical place of dragons and ice zombies and a whole lot of gratuitous nudity. That's right, to raise excitement about the upcoming season of Game of Thrones, we're going to explore the electoral history of Westeros and out Jon Snow, that beautiful warrior on the wall, as a beneficiary of overt voter fraud. So, let's get right to it. Five candidates remain in the race for the nomination of the two major parties in America, three Republicans and two Democrats. But since this podcast likes to use sports analogies to wrap wrap around politics, we're just going to talk about four of them. Sorry, John Kasich. Uh, I know you're still in the race, and a lot of Ohioans think you'd make a good president, but you're quite literally fourth place in a three-man race. Marco Rubio still has more delegates than you, and he dropped out of the race weeks ago. So, for purposes of argument, we've got two Republicans, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, and two Democrats, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. The final four. I checked back at my initial power rankings from last August and see how I did, and much like the rest of the political pundit class, I was pretty, pretty far off. I had Hillary Clinton in the poll position, which made sense, because back then nobody thought Bernie Sanders would give her the run that he has. In the number two spot, I actually had Donald Trump, and he's currently the frontrunner for the Republican nomination. I should be patting myself on the back, but I really don't deserve that. Back in August, I was convinced that Trump was going to flame out in the Republican race, but run as a third-party candidate. I ranked him number two because at the time there were 17 Republicans running for the nomination, and I thought that if Trump got himself on the ballot as a third-party candidate, that actually meant that he had better odds to become president than any of the Republicans. But whatever, all that prognosticating fell apart further down the list. Number three was Jeb Bush, followed by Scott Walker, followed by Marco Rubio, RIP, one and all. Bernie and Cruz were number six and number eight, respectively, and at the time, I thought I was being kind to both of them with that high of ratings. Oh well, the 2016 race has embarrassed quite a lot of politicos, so I guess I'm in good company. But let's move beyond what's already happened and look into the future. My guess is that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a few opinions about politics, and you're probably excited about at least one of the four remaining candidates, maybe more than one. But what happens if your favorite candidate doesn't make it to the general election? The odds-on favorite is a matchup between Trump and Clinton, and if their high unfavorable numbers are any indication, there will be plenty of voters unsure if they can support either candidate. I'll leave it to the Trump and Clinton campaigns to try and sway you to come over to their sides, but right now I'm going to talk about, run through some of your other options. I should say that the one option I won't be talking about is not voting at all and staying home on election day. Look, I get it if you're upset, but at Ballot Ball we're voting fanatics and think that there must be someone you can support even if it's a third-party candidate with no shot of really winning. 
Go out to the polls, register your complaint in a way that can be recorded for history. That's our motto. So here we go. I'm going to break down the voting options into four regions. You can see all these options visually by visiting the Ballot Ball website. It's the main story labeled March Madness. If you haven't torn up your NCAA tournament bracket, you'll see that it's separated into four different regions, with the winner of each region meeting up in the final four. The first region in our little alternative voting bracket is called the I Never Took the Pledge region. If you're a disaffected Republican who doesn't like Trump and or Cruz, you'll probably want to listen up to this one first. Your first option is to wait and see what happens at the Republican convention in Cleveland. There's been some talk that the Republican establishment might revolt against the Trump nomination and convince someone to run as a stealth Republican candidate at a different party's ticket. Names like Rick Perry and Todd Coburn are mentioned. Nobody knows exactly how this would work because getting someone else on the ballot in many states is a very difficult process. The Republican and Democratic parties have worked for years to make it difficult for third parties to do exactly what is being talked about here. So I think the likelihood of this happening is low. But honestly, stranger things have already happened in this primary season. Your next option is to go for the Libertarian Party. Former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson is the nominee there. And his webpage splash page has an enormous photo of the governor with a quotation under the head that says, Be Libertarian with me. If you're unfamiliar with the party, the general idea is that the federal government is way too big, taxes are way too high, and the American military is way too overdeployed. Lots of the economic positions would be music to the ears of disaffected Republican voters, but their social positions tend to reach across the aisle and attract some liberals as well. If libertarians don't float your boat, you can look further right in the conservative Constitution Party. They'll be choosing their nominee this month, but whoever it is will undoubtedly support the party's seven key principles. These include deference to states' rights, opposition to abortion and gay marriage, and securing the border between the U.S. and Mexico. But wait a minute. I hear you, Bernie bros. Why am I spending so much time discussing Republican frustration with their party when the Democrats are arranging a conspiracy of superdelegates and Wall Street corporations to nominate Hillary Clinton instead of everyone's favorite Larry David impersonator, Bernie Sanders? Well, I got your back. Whether you're a Bernanista or just someone who once swore a sacred oath that you would never vote for another Clinton, welcome to the feel the burn region of our bracket. Option one for you is to travel back in time like it's 1999 and vote for the Green Party. But forget about Ralph Nader. The Greens candidate this year is Jill Stein, a physician from Massachusetts who recently called Hillary Clinton a warmonger. This is in keeping with the Green Party's position that American military interventions need to be curtailed, wages for working people need to be increased, and renewable energy needs to be heavily invested in. If the Green Party doesn't do it for you, you might check out the up-and-coming Working Families Party. Interestingly, this party is focused on particular regions of the country, mostly the Northeast and Pacific Northwest, and is focused on state and local races. The current mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, has thanked the party for his surprising victory in 2013. Working Families has already endorsed Bernie Sanders for president, so it's not exactly clear what they'll do if Clinton becomes the Democratic nominee. In California, uh, you might not be able to support the Working Families Party, but you can check out the Peace and Freedom Party. Similar to Working Families, they've endorsed Bernie Sanders and Democratic Socialism. So that's the first two regions. The first will attract mostly conservative voters, I think, and the second will attract more liberal ones. But what if you don't consider yourself either? What if you're the all-important and much-worshipped swing voter who likes a little from column A and a little from column B? Welcome to the middle-of-the-road region. Way back in 1992, the diminutive Texas billionaire Ross Perot founded the Reform Party and ran for president. Since then, the party has attracted some headlines in Minnesota by getting 
former professional wrestler Jesse Ventura elected governor, and even Donald Trump once explored the possibility of running for president on a reform ticket. Lest you think that all these folks are more conservative than your average Joe, the Reform Party also endorsed Ralph Nader during the 2004 election. This is because in many ways the Reform Party isn't fighting over the same issues the Republicans and Democrats spar over. Perot's party stresses the need for a balanced budget, energy independence, and campaign finance reform. It's also unique for one issue that it explicitly refuses to take a position on. As far as I know, the Reform Party is the only political party in America that explicitly does not take a side on any issue related to abortion. Another party that might interest your moderate sensibilities is the Natural Law Party. In 1996, their candidates appeared on ballots in 48 states, though that number is down to only two this year. The party is something called a transnational party, and it's linked up to natural law parties in dozens of other countries. Their policies are a mix of economic moderation and progressive environmental reform. They're big proponents of what they call conflict-free politics and encourage compromise whenever possible. But what happens when you do the research and you just can't find anybody to like? Should you just stay home and not vote? Well, that's your right, I suppose. But I'm really hoping that if we haven't wooed you to any of the, in the first three regions, you'll find someone you like in the final region. Welcome to the protest vote region. If you really want to send a message that the presidential candidates are not acceptable, show up to vote, check a box in your mayor, mayoral races, your local ballot measures, your congressional representatives or senators or governor races, and then leave the presidential box empty. It'll be recorded as an incomplete ballot, and at least there will be some record of your dissatisfaction. You also have the option of frustrating your local poll worker by writing in a joke candidate. Mickey Mouse is by far the most popular fake candidate. He received his first vote at the age of four during the 1932 New York mayoral race. Mickey's popularity with voters and consternation to vote counters got so high that in 1985, Georgia passed a law specifically banning Mickey from the ballot. There was, and I'm not making this up, a legitimate fear of what would happen legally if Mickey actually won an election. If Mickey's not your speed, though, you can get creative. Other great write-in candidates include your mama, or maybe a bag of rocks. If you want to hear a funny story about what happens when a perceived joke candidate actually wins an election, check out episode three of this podcast. There's a story near the end about how citizens of Odessa, Ukraine, elected a man named Emperor Palpatine to their city council. Okay, then. Everybody got an idea on who they're voting for? Good. Let's head over to the International Battle Ball Studio and find out what's happening in the rest of the world. Welcome to the International Ballot Ball Studio. Oftentimes we drill down on an important election happening somewhere on the planet, allowing me to shed a little light on what's going on while mispronouncing a few names along the way. But this month, it's so chock full of so many big elections, we're going to skip around and preview, preview the biggest contests and allow me to mispronounce names at a record pace. To give you a visual of where I am right now, there's an enormous floating globe suspended in the middle of the studio, and it is an, it is an exact replica of the Earth with a hundred foot diameter. I'm standing on a floating platform that can zoom all around the scale Earth and zoom in to the country we're looking at. It's an incredibly expensive and beautiful setup, and I'm afraid it's just a complete waste since this is a podcast and you can't see any of it. I'm just going to set the coordinates for our first country, and then we'll be on our way. The Republic of Chad. Thanks, computer announcer. As you can see, we spared no expense getting all the best technology for the program. Welcome to Chad a landlocked country in the heart of Africa, and led by President Idris Deby. 
Now, the president of Chad shouldn't be confused for sophomore double-threat college QB Chad President. The president of Chad has been elected four times since seizing power in a coup 26 years ago. Meanwhile, Chad President played his first game in 2015 against East Carolina, but has since been relegated to the bench. I apologize for the silly joke, but it's just that I'm trying to come up with something light on this Chad story, because there is nothing funny about what's going on in Chad right now. To start with, the country is surrounded by chaos. There's a religious war between Muslims and Christians going on in the Central African Republic on Chad's southern border. Meanwhile, ISIS is making a safe haven out of Libya on Chad's northern border. To the east, hundreds of thousands of refugees have fled Sudan and Darfur and made home in Chadian refugee camps, and to the west, the Chadian military is battling Boko Haram. Internally, Chad is an oil-producing nation, which sounds like a good thing during boom times, but with crude oil prices at record lows, it's depressing an economy that is already one of the world's poorest and most corrupt. So yeah, forgive me for trying to put a positive spin on things by looking up Chad President's statistics at the Camping World Independence Bowl. But anyway, getting back to the Chadian election, President Debbie's running for his fifth term, and is promising to establish constitutional term limits if he's lucky enough to win this go-around. Voters can be forgiven for being a little skeptical of this pro promise, because Debbie was the one who did away with the term limits as his, as his second term was expiring. The opposition party's main objection is that the government's policy of allowing, re of allowing refugees to register to vote they claim that the, vo the foreign voters are allied with Debbie personally since he has given them a safe haven in Chad, and they shouldn't be allowed the same rights as Chadian citizens. Debbie's main rival in the, in the election is Salah Kebzabo, a journalist who founded Chad's first independent newspaper and has been a vocal critic of the government for years. There are so many candidates in the field that it's unlikely anyone will beat Debbie in the first round of elections in April, but Kebzabo hopes to finish a strong second in order to make it to the second round runoff election in May. The runoff will pit the two top finishers against each other, and Kebzabo hopes that he can consolidate the anti-Debbie vote. It seems clear that President Debe is a little nervous about Kebzabo's challenge, as he just appointed a new prime minister that comes from the same region as, of the country as Kebzabo in order to go after his base of support. The Republic of Djibouti Our next stop is the small nation of Djibouti. Africa's smallest nation is located on the coast of the Red Sea, and it's also holding an election this month. Djibouti is number one on my list of most fun nation names to say out loud, and so I think I'm just going to go ahead and say it again. Djibouti. The outcome of Djibouti's election is not really in doubt. President Ismail Omar Gwela is going for his fourth six-year term, and every indication is that he's going to win again. In recent months, he's received criticism for suppressing a demonstration for a recently deceased opposition leader by sending in police and who wound up shooting 19 people, including an opposition member of parliament. The government has also detained two journalists in the run-up to the election, and the organization Reporters Without Borders reports that one of the journalists, Mohamed Ways, was forced to give up his Facebook login. The government agents then used the Facebook profile to impersonate Ways and logging onto his account and publishing insults to the government opposition. Despite these tactics, President Guela is spared from too much international backlash because of Djibouti's strategic importance. The nation is located at the choke point that separates the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, which means all the ships that are headed through the Suez Canal get a great view of the Djibouti coastline as they sail by. Countries like Spain, France, and Italy all have military bases in Djibouti in order to protect these shipping lanes, especially as they sail further south through Somali waters. The United States controls Camp Lemignier, which is a naval and air base that orchestrates a great deal of anti-terror activities throughout the region. Even China is about to get in the act and build its first naval base on the continent of Africa. 
For this reason, President Guella has a lot of leeway from the international community, as long as he ensures stability in this country. The big military presence in Djibouti may not be good for Somali pirates, but it's also not great for democracy. The Republic of Serbia Leaving Africa for the moment, we're headed for Belgrade and the upcoming Serbian snap elections. Snap elections are really interesting, and I wish that we they would catch on in the U.S. You see, in most parliamentary systems, the government can call an election at any time during their term. If the U.S. had a similar system, we might be able to settle the Supreme Court vacancy by having a snap election to elect a president right away, rather than waiting a year. In Serbia, the government isn't due for another election until 2018, but Prime Minister Aleksandar Vucic is betting that he can lead his party to victory if he holds elections now. Vucic's party is at the head of a governing coalition that has adopted, op, adopted the name Serbia Wins, and it looks like he's headed for a victory that will come close to a two-thirds ruling majority. You might not have expected such high marks for any government in the region just a few short months ago. Serbia is smack dab in the center of the emerging, the emerging Syrian refugee crisis, and many hundreds of thousands of refugees have entered Serbia in recent times. All across Europe, ruling governments have dealt with the political backlash by, of accepting refugee transit or asylum, and many of the nations that have accepted the most refugees, namely Greece, Germany, and Hungary, have seen nationalist opposition gains in their recent elections. Hungary fenced off fenced itself off entirely to stop the refugees from arriving. But meanwhile, in Serbia, Vucic's government has received high praise from humanitarian organizations as he has allowed the refugees greater freedom than some of his neighboring countries. And unlike those other countries, the nationalist and anti-refugee parties are not gaining any steam. Analysts point to the fact that since Serbia is not a member of the EU, it has the freedom to choose its own refugee po policy without having it forced upon it by a central authority. Others think that the country is actively trying to change its international reputation. In the 90s, Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic earned the nickname the Butcher of the Balkans for his role in catalyzing the Yugoslavian civil war and genocide. The shadows of this dark time in Serbian history are still present today. One of the candidates who is hoping to defeat Prime Minister Vucic is former General Vojislav Sejil, uh, the, member, the leader of the Serbian Radical Party. If you Google the Serbian election, you'll see pictures of the individual prime minister hopefuls in front of Serbian flags and looking austere, but the picture of General Cecil is different. You'll see him wearing headphones and sitting in front of a computer, and the picture is courtesy of the International War Crimes Tribunal, which has been prosecuting the general for the last 13 years for atrocities committed during the war. The photo shows the general listening to the translation as his list of high crimes and misdemeanors is read out against him. Before I have the computer announce what country we're going to next, let's play a little game. I'm going to tell you the top three candidates for president in this mystery nation, and you tell me what country I'm talking about. To start off with, due to term limits, the current president of this mystery country cannot run for consecutive terms, and so will have to sit on the sidelines for the next five years. The frontrunner to replace him is 41-year-old Keiko Fujimoro, the daughter of Alberto Fujimoro, a former president who was later found guilty of murder, kidnapping, and embezzlement. Keiko finished in second place to the current president in the last election, which is a little awkward considering the fact that the current president once tried to lead a coup against her father when he was president. Fujimoro's main competition is a former prime minister whose last name is Kaczynski and was born in Por Poland and worked much of his life in the United States. To round out the top three candidates, Alan Garcia is also a former president who is trying to get back on top after serving two non-consecutive terms in the 80s and 90s. Have you guessed it yet? Are we in an Asian nation? Or maybe a European nation with a large Asian or Hispanic population? Computer, where are we? The Republic of Peru. That's right, Peru. 
It's one of the many countries that establishes term limits against successive terms for president, but doesn't limit how many times you get elected in a lifetime. For this reason, you'll often see several presidents and ex-presidents on the ballot at the same time. It's almost like boxing, where title holders get knocked down, but then work their way up to another title shot five years later. As I said before, Keiko Fujimoro is the odds-on favorite to win in April, and continue on to a runoff against whoever finishes second. Despite the fact that her father is serving a 25-year prison sentence after being impeached, the Fujimura presidency is remembered fondly as a time of economic prosperity and a time when hyperinflation was brought under control. The old political adage, it's the economy, stupid, comes in mind when you consider the fact that Keiko Fujimura is openly drawing similarities with her father, and this is in fact politically beneficial for her. Remember, her father was impeached and then later found guilty of murder, kidnapping, and embezzlement. The Republic of Korea now we're in Asia. Did you guess South Korea during the last story after you heard the name Keiko Fujimoro and the Mystery Nation? If you did, I've got two things to say to you. First, congratulations, you're a racist. The Fujimoros are of Japanese descent, not Korean. But second, hooray, we're moving on to the election in South Korea. This month's voters, this month, voters are going to go to the polls for their legislative assembly. And I've got to be honest, it's just not going to be as exciting as next year's presidential election is turning out to be. Betting circles believe that in 2017, the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon is going to end his tenure as a diplomat and run for the president against the very unpopular current leader, Park Yun-yi. But don't worry, any election in Korea comes with a pretty high floor for how exciting it will be. If you get some spare time today, go ahead and do yourself a favor and do a YouTube search for South Korean parliament fights. You won't regret it. These parliamentarians will throw down if they don't like your budget proposals. This year's contest is looking like it's going to be an anti-establishment year in parliament. Opposition parties are very upset about new laws that weaken trade unions and government plans to rewrite textbooks that glorify President Yonyi's father, who ruled as a military dictator in the 60s and 70s before being assassinated. The international community has recently commented that democracy itself is being undermined during President Yi's tenure. Freedom House has downgraded South Korea from the category of free to the lower category of partly free due to a crackdown on political protests. One example of this crackdown is exhibited by the 69-year-old leader of the opposition Korean Peasant League. During a protest in Seoul recently, he was knocked unconscious by a water cannon and remains in hospital. However, the government does have a reasonable chance of holding on to their majority in the parliament as long as the opposition stays divided. Recent polls indicate that the two main opposition parties have more support together than the ruling Minju party, but they have yet to form an alliance that would be able to form a government. The sort of coalition building is crucial to parliamentary systems, and it might take the entrance of a unifying figure like Ban Ki-moon to really consolidate the government opposition. I'd go into more detail about the Minju Party's divide-and-conquer strategy in this election, but I'm getting distracted by another Korean parliament fight video on YouTube. Two middle-aged female MPs are fighting it out, while a chyron at the bottom of the screen reads, No holds barred. There's nothing parliamentary about this. I'm going to get some popcorn. I'll be right back. The Syrian Arab Republic. All right, we're in Syria. We've saved the craziest for last. South Korea's president might be a little unpopular, but her popularity is sky high compared to the popularity of another president whose voters are going to the polls on the same day. President Bashar al-Assad of Syria is so unpopular that literally half the country has fled to refugee camps or sought asylum in the West. In addition to the estimated 23 million displaced people, at least 300,000 have died during a civil war that has included atrocities, sarin gas, and absolute barbarism. 
While there has been a ceasefire, at least on paper, for the last month, the question of how the country moves on is anyone's guess. Assad is officially the president of the entire country, but even the most generous news accounts estimate that the government actually controls only about a quarter of Syria. The rest is situated between rebel forces, ISIS territory, or the foreboding no-man's land where who knows who's in charge. So, into this bedlam, Assad has chosen to call an election. Even though most of the country is out of his control and half his people are either dead or have fled the country, despite the massive population change from the last election, Assad is going to keep the parliament size the same. 250 members of parliament, 20 will be elected from the capital, which seems reasonable since that is the epicenter of Assad's power. But how exactly is the election going to run in the rest of the country? Eight MPs will be, quotation fingers, elected from the city of Raqqa, but there are almost certainly going to be government puppets because there is no way Assad would allow the people who live in Raqqa to vote. If you've never heard of Raqqa, consider it this way. If ISIS was a country, Raqqa would be its capital. It lies deep in ISIS territory, and if eight MPs were elected by the people who are currently living in Raqqa, they would be elected with a mandate to assassinate Assad and set the world on fire. Even when you get to government-controlled areas, this election does not lose its farcical character. The coastal city of Latakia will elect 17 MPs, and I expect Assad to do pretty well there for one simple reason. In 2011, when rebels held Latika, Assad ordered gunboats to indiscriminately open fire on the city. I expect most of the anti-Assad vote has moved out of town, that is, if they weren't one of the dozens killed in the bombardment. So, what we're left with is an absolute joke of an election. With so much of the opposition dead, displaced, or somehow otherwise disenfranchised, it will be a downright miracle if Assad's party gets a single vote cast against it. This Syrian election gets to one of the underlying problems with how we define democracy. This podcast gets the name Ballot Ball from the idea that elections are a game that the world plays to decide who its leaders will be and what actions they're allowed to take, but it should never, ever be confused as being the same thing as democracy. There's going to be a ballot ball game in Syria on April 13th. That's a fact. There's going to be voting and vote counting and a voting result announced. Bashar al-Assad's party will be the winner and he will get to crow about how the people have given him a mandate. He'll be the one that foreign leaders address and he'll be the one that you can search on Wikipedia as the leader of Syria. This is a problem. It's a problem for all the refugees and victims of, of Assad's violence, but it's also a problem that we see around the world all the time. What's the difference between a tyrant and a president? If the tyrant keeps getting elected, do they magically lose their tyrant status? How do we define legitimate democracy and separate it from a kabuki theater that simply goes through the motions? Since the term ballot ball mixes politics and sports, one of the first things I tried to do with the ballot ball website was to separate all the countries in the world into sports divisions based on how they voted and the quality of their democracies. The problem is, separating all the countries into a dictator division and a constitutional monarchy division is easier said than done. There's an evolving process where each election needs to be looked at separately. Consider the United States. We pride ourselves as having ushered in a wave of democratization and after declaring our independence in 1776, but if you transported George Washington's America to the current day, would we even consider it a democracy at all? GW is remembered as being the only president to have been elected unanimously. In 1789, he received 69 electoral votes and secured the first of four spots on Mount Rushmore, right? That's how we remember it. Only, the thing is, those 69 votes didn't reflect the outcome of a popular vote, because there was no popular vote. The 69 votes came from congressmen and senators in the Electoral College. The congressmen were direct, directly elected by the people, but the senators were elected by the state legislatures. 
What's more, women didn't have the right to vote at all, and so they can't be said to have elected Washington. Neither did slaves. Neither did Americans, Native Americans living in America. Neither did poor white men who didn't own property. Neither did non-Christians or people under 21. Neither did active-duty soldiers, because at that time there was no mechanism for an absentee ballot. Washington didn't even sweep all 13 states. North Carolina and Rhode Island hadn't ratified the Constitution yet, and so the election was held without them. And the New York legislature couldn't decide on who to vote for and spent the election acting out their favorite South Korean parliament fight video. But when we write the history books, we say that George Washington was unanimously elected as the first president. Now, I just mocked Bashar al-Assad because he's about to get an electoral mandate from such a small fraction of Syrians. But what percentage of Americans actually said, can be said to have voted for George Washington in 1789 once you subtract the populations of New York, North Carolina, Rhode Island, women, slaves, and all the other disenfranchised populations? I'm not trying to do some sort of clickbait headline here like, is Bashar al-Assad the second coming of George Washington? I don't believe the two elections are analogous, and there is one hell of a curve for democracy in the 18th century versus today. No doubt in 300 years someone will be recording a podcast decrying 21st century America for not letting robots vote. But I'm trying to point out that the quick and easy definitions of democracy are hard to come by. They involve a lot more than just what goes down in the election, and include things like civil rights, education, a free press, and legal safeguards against disenfranchisement and corruption. Alright, well, this sermon is about to end. Enough talking about despots and human rights abuses and Serbian war criminals running for parliament. Actually, wait a second, we have some breaking news. General Vojislav Cecil's 13-year war crimes trial has just reached a verdict. Drumroll, please, and he's been acquitted of all charges. It turns out that his winning strategy involved filing a motion saying that the judges were biased against him for, quote, strong inclinations to convict accused persons of Serbian ethnicity. Oh boy. I think we've had enough of the real world for one show. Let's head over to the Ballot Ball Classic Studio for an exploration of the electoral history in the far-off land of Westeros. not quite the Game of Thrones theme song, but hopefully the Balabal classic theme got you in the right mood for today's story. For the uninitiated, this is the part of the podcast where I reveal that I have the power to travel through space and time, and even to imaginary worlds. In previous episodes, I've gone all the way back to ancient Greece to discover the origins of democracy through the reforms of the great Cleisthenes, and I've traveled back to 2010 to talk to Roki Soliman, the former administrator of Washington, D.C. elections, about the, tri about the time he tried to implement online voting, only to be foiled by hackers from the University of Michigan. Go Wolverines. But today, we're going to be nerding it up and traveling to the magical land of Westeros, from the book series A Song of Ice and Fire and the HBO show Game of Thrones. I have a love-hate relationship with this show simply be because before I created Ballot Ball, I wanted to use Game of Thrones as the website's title. But copyright law is a hassle, and George R. R. Martin doesn't mess around with peasants trying to steal his IP. If you haven't read the books or watched the show, just know that this is a universe that exists in a somewhat realistic Middle Ages setting. There are ice zombies and dragons, but most of the magic happens on the margins. The real heart of the story is about the political games played by kings and queens and religious zealots. Warring houses make alliances, betray their close friends, and then turn right back around and double or triple cross anyone they, they feel they need to. While the world in this story is mainly controlled by monarchies and dynastic family groups, there are at least a few examples of elections happening in the books and in the show. I've invited my friend John Nelson on the show today to walk us through how Ballot Ball is played in Westeros. 
John, welcome to the show. And can you start off by talking about everyone's favorite handsome Lord Commander, Jon Snow? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, greetings from Albuquerque, the home state of George R. R. Martin himself, lest we forget. But um, for those of you who don't know, Jon Snow was the bastard son of Ned, of Ed, Ned Stark of Winterfell, who uh, very early on in the books decided that he would be taking the black and joining the Night's Watch up in the north. And so he and his uncle Benjen, who I who I believe was the chief ranger at the time, went north, and uh, he took the oath, he swore the words, and uh, Jon Snow became a member in good standing. And so uh, throughout his time there, he earned the trust of the different folks there. He performed well in battle, befriended some folks, even the people who weren't that popular, like Sam. Um, And when... The time came for the election of the 998th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Uh, Jon Snow's name was kind of floated as a possibility of someone who could succeed Lord Marmont. Mormont. And so the the Night's Watch, right, is it's basically the... uh, it's the uh, it's the immigration control of Westeros, right? It's the border They guard guard a giant wall, an ice wall. Yeah, it's the Border Patrol. Basically, they're up there in the north. This this wall, which is probably hundreds of feet tall, taller than what Trump's even proposing. Yeah, he must be a big fan of the show. He, he must be. He must be. They stole his idea. I agree. Or he stole theirs. I don't know no. who came first. But they're basically, uh, they're the, the shield that protects the Seven Kingdoms from the north. And north of the wall is kind of the wild, where the wildlings live. And these people, you know, they're not as structured. They don't live in the same kind of rigid society that the rest of the Seven Kingdoms live in. They kind of are tribal and, and, and a little bit more uncouth. Um, and so they're always seen as the others bad. So we have this wall to stop them from coming down and kind of infiltrating the north and the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. So that wall is up there to kind of protect the rest of the, the realm. Okay. So then Jorah Mormont is like the Lord Commander and he dies, right? Yes. So now, now there's going to be an election, right, to decide yes. who's going who's gonna to be the new Lord Commander. Yes. And just like any good election, we've got a lot of different candidates. And so... In the books, basically, the, the main candidates, kind of the people who are most likely to succeed, one was um, Jano Slint, who was basically, he was the commander of the guard, the captain of the guard, the gold cloaks down in, in um, King's Landing. But he was disgraced. And for those of you, and, and, and to join the Night's Watch, basically, you've given up your life. You give up who you were, everything you did, any crimes you committed, all of that is kind of freed from you. You're just, you are purged of all your sins when you join the Night's Watch, when you take the oath. So even though he was disgraced down in the, in the South, when he joined the Night's Watch, Slint was seen as someone who had experience. He might be able to be a good candidate. Uh, we also had um, Sir Malister, who was another commander at one of the other kind of satellite camps up there in the, in the north of the, of the Night's Watch. And he was kind of more of a courtly knight. He was kind of a, a strategic person. He was a little more, um, he took everything a little slow. He was a little more thoughtful, thought things through. He was kind of more of a, a diplomat. 
You know, he, he looked to see how the Night's Watch could probably work with the kingdoms to kind of improve their, their standing amongst the realm. And then the other candidate was Pike, who was kind of, uh, he was a sailor, he was a warrior, he was crass, rash, brash. You know, his stance was, I'm a warrior, this is what we need, the wildlings are here, you don't need someone like Malister who's just going to sit there in the tower writing letters you're not going to need a slint. You need someone who's going to get out there and fight. So those were kind of the three main candidates at the time of the election. Okay. And so Jon Snow was probably the underdog. He was kind of the, uh, the, 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 the long shot, right? Because he was like a new recruit. Exactly. He was. But he had done some good things. You know, he had kind of defended the wall against the wildlings. And so um, a few people thought that he might be a good... Um, con- you know, consensus candidate, someone that people could fall behind. And so Samuel Tarley, who was kind of his best friend, and mm-hmm. he was the, also... He's kind of the, the, Carl, the Carl Rove or the David Axelrod of this election, right? The behind-the-scenes yes. guy. Yes, the behind-the-scenes kind of a strategist for Jon Snow. He kind of... He sort of engineers it. He goes to talk to both Pike and Malister. And Pike and Malister are like different ends of the spectrum you know they can't support each other they're never going to agree on anything they just can't agree to support the other person to drop out let the other person become the lord commander but but samwell goes to each of them and says look uh, couldn't you maybe throw your support behind someone else you know and they would name oh there's no one we can think of but sam would sam suggested well what about john snow and all of them went well you know he, he might be someone I could get behind. But they didn't, you know, there was no kind of um, bargain struck at that time. It wasn't really until you got to the actual election, the actual casting of the votes, that Jon Snow really comes up to the forefront. And while he is a good candidate, it kind of took a very, uh, a, an omen mm-hmm. to basically seal the deal because basically... The tradition of the Night's Watch was that they would bring out a big black kettle. And everyone, every candidate basically had a different, um, a different stone or arrowhead, something that would symbolize the vote for them that they would throw in. Mm-hmm. And so when they bring out this kettle and they take off the lid, out flies this crow. And, or, yeah, crow. And, you know, crows and ravens were always messengers. And the crow actually belonged to the former Lord Commander. And it starts shouting, snow, snow, snow. And I think Alistair Thorne, who's kind of a, um, an antagonist to Jon Snow the whole time, goes, oh, you know, that's just the bird. You taught a bird to speak. But then the bird starts saying these other words. And, and Lord Commander Marmont's bird was known that it could say other things. So everyone thought this was the former Lord Commander's. This is a sign that Jon Snow should be elected. And he wins in a landslide. Uh-huh. And so was this crow, was this just happenstance that it popped out of the kettle? Or was this, is this Samwell Tarly behind the scenes? Well, Sam denied knowing anything about it. Mm-hmm. But I have a feeling Samuel Tarly probably helped Jon Snow every way he could, including putting a crow in a kettle. See, this is the thing that's just so disappointing. You've got so many, so many heroes that are neither black or white, but somewhere in the gray in this world. And here's Jon Snow, this pinnacle of chivalry and honor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just think this is voter fraud. I think there's just some voter fraud going on. Little dirty tricks, political dirty tricks, throwing an omen in the kennel. The kennel to, uh, you, to hey, 
it's you know last minute it's like a last minute news story that broke you know <laughs> the october surprise an october the, surprise the, 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 and, the and, and the, the people go for it and the people went for it and he won so i i can't fault him for that well that's well that's good that's i i I have to admit, knowing everything we know about Jon Snow, he probably did make a good commander. Although his, I don't think his uh, his brothers enjoyed his uh, his softness on the immigration issue. They didn't they didn't like uh, the the squishiness of uh, of his uh, immigration policy of letting the wildlings through the wall. They might have Pro- to reconsider his politics there. Probably not, and letting them re- you know I think they're resettling what the gift, which is that piece of land given to them. So they're just taken over already. But hey. Uh, we'll see with the uh, with the White Walkers and everything. Maybe it won't be. Maybe those are really the illegal immigrants we're trying to keep out. I don't know. Oh. But then let's uh, zoom zoom out then a little bit. So that's that's going on in the north in the wall mm-hmm. with the that's barbarians the at the gates and the yep. ice zombies and Jon Snow getting assassinated and we all cross our fingers that he's going to come back to life somehow. Uh, but uh, there are like kings and queens and there's like a dragon queen and all sorts of other characters in the story. But are there any other examples of people actually getting elected? Is there democracy in Westeros anywhere? Well, um, there is down. There's a few other examples I can think of actually off the top of my head. Um, one of them, well, it's, it's not a king or a queen, but it is a religious figure. Um, the The... The High Septon, and the, Sept- the Septons are basically the priests of this, of this land, the priests of the Seven. Um, they are, the High Septon is basically, he's basically the Pope, the Pope of the land. And the, and the TV show, this is uh, Jonathan Price, right? The Jonathan guy Price, the, yes, the, the High Sparrow. Imprisoning yes. everyone for religious sins. Committed. Exactly, okay. exactly. And so basically how the High Septon gets elected is there's a, there's a group called the Most Devout which are made up of septas and septons who are seen to be, as the name would imply, very devout. And so they gather at the great sept there in King's Landing, and they, and they usually elect amongst themselves who's going to be the next high septon. And usually, usually the crown has some say in it, you know. And, and, you know, this is very similar to how we have the College of Cardinals and the Conclave and the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. But when the high, you know, when... When the High Sparrow is elected, things are thrown into a little uh, disarray because uh, his followers basically break in and hijack, uh, I'll call it the Conclave, the most devout. And basically under uh, threat, bodily threat and harm, with axes and swords drawn, the most devout vote and uh, elect the High Sparrow, the High Septon. And... Uh, he is, as you said, Jonathan Price is in the in the show. He is ruling well. Even has Cersei imprisoned for her crimes and 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 Marjorie. So um, I'm sure we'll be seeing more of it this coming season. But that's another example of an election that kind of uh, that went down. Okay, so you said there was kind of some violence at this at when. When he when he got elected this time, it was a little out of the norm. How, how uh, yes, I mean usually yes, I mean I think usually it would just kind of be sitting around thinking, okay, we're all wise folks, rich people. Let's all just keep it going, you know. Mm-hmm. Let the good times roll. But this time, kind of these these sparrows, these kind of the very basic people of the faith, come in and basically threaten them the most about to elect this person. And when he comes, I mean, he kind of upends everything. I mean, these people were used to wearing 
you know, luxurious fabrics and living in opulent palaces. Now they're basically walking around in, you know, linens and probably living with the rest of the people in the streets. So things have changed with that election for sure. And is he is he in the office for life? Is he uh, guaranteed a high sparrowhood? Uh, I, I believe it is life, but as we know in Westeros, that is fleeting at best. <laughs> so I might not last too long. So I don't know how long he will be in the office because I think in the course of the books, I think we've gone through two high septons already. Oh, so yes, yes. he is the third one. I think. You know, wasn't, one wasn't was, one like ripped apart in a one was mob ripped violence apart in a riot by mob <laughs> violence, and I believe the other was murdered by Cersei. So oh, yes, yes. I believe you know things are not always even a religious figure. Life is not always great. You uh, it's fleeting. Hmm. Enjoy it while you can. Well, there was one other instance that I wanted to to, to talk about, and you reminded me of it when we we talked earlier. I totally sure. forgot about it, and it's might be a bit of a spoiler. Because readers of the books obviously will know about this, but I don't think it's been on the TV show yet, and it has to do with the uh, the Greyjoys and mm. the Ironborn, right? Isn't yes. There a, don't they elect their leaders in a in a special way? So they do elect their leaders in a special way. They have what is called a king's moot, and basically, it's a gathering of all the the clans, the tribes. As, as anyone who's read the books or seen the show, you know, family is very important. Your 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 dynasty, your family your crest, all of that. So basically all of those families in the Iron Islands come together at kind of this ancient uh, plot of land where the bones of a, of a Naga are there. And they, formed, they, they were the, the, the hall of the great leaders who founded the Ironborn, and they all come together. And basically what it is, it's basically kind of a, a pissing match slash campaign rally. And basically, everyone gets everyone has a chance to kind of stand up and, and lay their claim to why they should be uh, the leader of the Iron Lord, why they should rule the Iron Islands. And they basically get to stand up there and 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 lay claim to all their accomplishments, what they've done, um, what they plan on doing, and like any good campaign, spread a little wealth, a little bribery, and they usually bring their spoils that they can then. Mm show off and, and share with their support. And basically how the election will go down is it will kind of just be a spontaneous thing where they'll after they finish their spiel, their little Trump their little stump speech, people will start shouting their names. And if that kind of gets viral and everyone starts shouting their names, then they will be seen as the legitimate ruler of the Iron Islands. And so uh, maybe book readers will already know this, but uh, so TV viewers maybe turn it off now because you're you're going to get it spoiled for you. But but in the in the story, right, the uh, the king of the the Greyjoy, the Greyjoy king of the Ironborn mm-hmm. is is going to be is going to die mysteriously. Yeah, there's going to be they, a king's mood basically of his relative, mostly his relatives, right? Or are some people not his relatives? I mean, so Balon Greyjoy does pass away, and there are some people who are not his relatives that you know, stand up and kind of get the ball rolling, but they don't really have much of a chance. And so basically it's his, his brothers and his daughter that basically are the, the leading candidates to take his place on the, on the sea stone chair, I believe it's called. Uh-huh. The head pirate, the master pirate. <laughs> the head pirate, yes. Oh. And so I believe one of his brothers, uh, Victorian, Victorian, um, I know, as you can tell, as a book reader, 
you always make up these names in your mind, so you're never quite sure <laughs> how to pronounce it. So, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, Ian McShane is is cast this year to be oh. one, one of them. I'm not sure if he's going to be uh, which which brother he's going to be. Yeah, because because there's one brother that is kind of a priest that worships the drowned god. He might, I think it might be Ian McShane might play him, but I'm not ah, sure. But okay. Victorian is basically when he gets up to give his trumps. His stump speech. He basically Trump speech, really, right? You know, <laughs> I guess my mind is there. But when he's he gonna stands make the Iron Islands great again, <laughs> exactly. We'll get baseball. Ca- we'll get Viking helmets with that written on it, I guess. Um, but when Victorian gets up to do his stump speech, he basically promises more of the same of Balon. You know, the Ironborn had kind of uh, they had fought the North and they had won the North. They had taken Winterfell. They had uh, Moat Kalen. They were raiding and pillaging, uh, and he promised more of the same. And people liked that. But then Asha, who is Balon's daughter, so basically she's the daughter of the, of the king who just passed, you know, she stands up and she goes, that's all well and good, but where has that gotten us? You know, we basically, we have a tenuous hold on the north. Um, we are the enemies of the Iron Throne. We have really nothing to show for all our accomplishments in the North. We, you know, we, we don't really have anything. And so I promise that instead of trying to take a kingdom, I will build a kingdom. You know, we'll have peace. I will work the, we will work this island. We will improve these islands. We will build homes. We'll do all this stuff. This is how we're, we're not – war is not the answer. We're going to you know, stay here and improve our lot. We're going to focus on the interior. So it's, and classic, it's the classic political tale of she's she's offering a a, a calm, cool, and collective future based yes. on rationality and well thought, and then he's offering her the he's offering everyone the world and it, the, the, a new dynasty and a, a thousand year empire. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and who wins? Well, neither, because they have a, Balon has another brother, Euron, who comes, and he says, well. Actually, he announces his presence with the blast of a dragon's horn, <laughs> and basically, it, it's a pretty good. It's a pretty good uh, entrance. If you oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's it's you know, it's like when Hillary comes out to fight song. It's basically mm-hmm. that. Yeah, you know, it's basically his fight song. So <laughs> this trumpet sounds, this blast, this horn, and everyone, you know, it. it this horn for those of you, well. That's right. You haven't seen it, so I can talk about it. So it comes from old Valeria, which is, you know, where all the dragon lords came from. You know, this is where the Targaryens originated from. So he has this ancient dragon's horn, which basically has these properties that basically it it shivers people to the bone. You know, I mean, it, it has that effect on people. And he basically announces, you know, why settle for one or the other? Why not have both? You know, we can... We could be happy with the North for sure, but I propose we take into, we we have enough power in ourselves to take the entire Seven Kingdoms. You know, don't just be happy with Winterfell. We can take King's Landing. We can take um, uh, Lannisport. We can take Sunspear. All of it can be ours. And people go, well, how is this possible? Well, this horn he has has the power to control the dragons, and he proposes that he will go to see Daenerys over there in Easteros. Oh, and, and she's I, on the far side of the world. She's completely yes. far away from everybody else. Exactly. I mean, she's very just very far removed. And he says he will take this horn, take the dragons, control the dragons, come back and conquer in the name of the Iron Islands, and they will have 
everything they've always wanted. They will have their islands. They will have the whole. Everything will be theirs. And like anyone who makes grand campaign promises, people begin shouting his name, and he is elected the new leader of the Ironborn. Oof. Captures he captures their imagination. Captures the imagination. You know, better times are ahead, folks. Uh huh. Well, it's so, nice to see that that politics in in Westeros and on the Iron Islands is pretty much the same. Pretty much the same anywhere. You can yeah, just just promise people big enough promises and yeah. I mean, basically that. I mean, it's funny. As I was thinking about this, I said to myself, you know, in the current campaign climate we're in, and comparing it to Westeros, which is a fantasy land, things are basically the same. You know, no matter where you are, the human psyche wants you know wants great promises, wants victory, wants someone to lead them to greatness again. And that's what people follow, you know? Or mob violence (laughs) (laughs) and help influence things as well. Well then this this is a great this is a great way to end it then. So it's called the Game of Thrones and we've talked about lots of different characters and lots of different people running for office and kings and queens. So in your opinion, who is gonna win? Who's gonna win the Game of Thrones and at the end of the day? So who's gonna sit on the Iron Throne? Yeah, maybe maybe you can do a top three or something like that. If you if you don't think you can do it down to a single a single well, victor, like like I said earlier, you know, life is fleeting in in, in Westeros. So I, I have a prediction that most people are not gonna make it out mm. of the books alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the person I kind of have a feeling who might sit on the Iron Throne, I, Sansa Stark. Oh, you know, oh, I think I think. She has the pedigree. She has. Um, she's married. She's a, she's a she's a Stark. She's married to a Lannister. She. I just think she might survive it all. And she, as readers of the book might know, and I think we're at the point where if you're not, if you don't read the books, you shouldn't be listening. She's toughened up. She's been she's been toughening up here, people. Yeah. I think she's gonna. I think she's gonna make it. Um, other than that, you know, I just don't see. I don't. I don't really know. No, no love for Daenerys. She has dragons. <laughs> I don't think Daenerys is gonna make it. Oh, I don't. Controversy. I don't because let's face it. I mean, I think we all know how the grand, you know, the last act is going to be dragons versus ice zombies. The, the ice zombies. Mm. And I think, obviously, I think the dragons will be victorious, but I think there's going to be a toll placed on some folks. So I, I think Danny is not going to survive, but if she does more power to her. <laughs> well, that does it for another episode of the battle ball podcast. Thanks everybody for, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the, all the talk about presidential campaigning world elections. And of course the plight of Westeros and who will win the game of Thrones. Uh, if you're still listening, please uh, please be sure to tell people about the podcast. You can find it on iTunes and subscribe and leave comments, which is really excellent. You can follow at ballot underscore ball, where we live tweet uh, the debates and do other fun things during the campaign. And just check back on the ballball.com website every week for new stories. Uh, thanks, thanks a lot, everybody, and have a good one. 